0: Welcome to The Clay Young Show. Clay Young here with another edition of The Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com and on iTunes. I think I worked my name in enough right there in the opening 10 seconds. Hopefully you guys are having a fantastic day or afternoon or morning as you listen to our little show here on the website and of course... You take us with you wherever you go on your iPhone, your iPad, your Droid. And we've been telling people for, for the longest. If you don't have an Apple device, just go to podcast225.com and you can listen to the show directly from the site. It is that simple. If you do have an iPhone or an iPad or you listen to us on your Apple computer, hit the subscribe button. Download the show every week. Helps our numbers, helps show that we are reaching people with good content every week, and I love that. So keep doing it, keep spreading the word about our show. Coming up here in the coming weeks, we've got a couple of other shows that are going to be launched on our website, and we're going to be looking for more. So if you think you got what it takes to have your own show, your own podcast, hit us up online at podcast225.com, or you can call my office at 225 2141550 Upcoming guests include Louisiana Secretary of State Tom Shedler who is I believe going to be the guest on next week's show and after that David Savona is scheduled to join us David Savona is the executive editor of Cigar Aficionado magazine Cigar Aficionado magazine is about more than just cigars it's a magazine mostly for men but it's about golf, it's about cars, it's about clothing, it's about hotels and resorts, and it's about delicacies, and it's about libations. It is a wonderful journey into the good life. In fact, it's the Good Life magazine for men, and David Savona recently took over as the executive editor from Gordon Mott, who has, I think, moved more into a periodic contributor role with Cigar Aficionado magazine. So we're working out the details to get uh, him on to uh, talk with us. That will likely be in a couple of weeks leading up to the election. And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Our guest on today's show will be John Cuvion, who is a local pollster and politico. And we're going to talk about the races that are going to be on the ballot in Louisiana Coming up in, I guess, about a month as you listen to this uh, early voting starts even sooner than that. We're going to talk about the governor's race. We'll talk about the lieutenant governor's race. We'll talk some about the politics of uh, the new <laughs> era here. We'll talk about digital politics. We'll talk about strategery, as you will hear us say a whole lot in that show. Uh, we're going to talk about some about the Department of Education and what's happened there. Some of the reality. Listen. Some of the numbers about Louisiana's electorate right now might surprise you. And we actually deal with what's happening in the state with the two parties and why there isn't a single statewide elected Democrat in Louisiana. We get into the numbers to show why that is and why that reality could or could not be changing soon. You'll have to listen to the show to hear it. So we'll talk with John Cuvion Coming up on the other side of a quick break. And again, don't forget, spread the word about our show. It's free. You can listen to it on your phone, on your computer, on your tablet. We do all of this quality audio. Major guests, think about it. We've had U.S. senators. We've had, gosh, members of the legislature. We've had businessmen who've built things. We've had people who do entertainment every day for a living. We've, I mean, it's been really, and, and, and we're only 31 shows into this thing. So I think that we have done pretty good by you guys. And all we require is that you spread the word. I love hearing from you. Thank you for the kind words. And we're going to work hard for you because I got a plan for this thing that you'll be hearing coming over the next few weeks. So having said all of that, quick break and then back with John Cuvion to talk politics. Love that. That's next on The Clay Young Show promote your business or organization on podcast 225.com podcast 225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for louisiana listeners every month thousands hear the weekly clay young show every week clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Back with John Cuvion, who is, in my opinion, one of the brighter analytical minds as it relates to politics that I've come across in a little while. We met probably three years ago. I was consulting with a gentleman who was running for an office, and I think we had spoken before then, but you had done some polling for me. And since then, we've kind of had contact fairly consistently uh, since then and have kept up with a lot of what's going on. So let's talk about... JMC, your company and what you do. Let's give you a little plug there here on the show.
1: I'd be happy to. First off, it's good to be here today, Clay. Thank you, sir. And just to tell you a little bit about me and my company, I'm one of those who's always loved politics all my life. But I never, That's unfortunate. It, it, it's an illness that I warned my wife about years ago before I got <laughs> married. I, I, I told her that's the only mistress I would ever have, so to speak. But to tell you a little bit about my company, I was one of those to where I've always loved politics all my life. The question was how to make a living off of it. Well, yeah. I also have had a knack for, I guess, analysis and mathematics ever since I've been a child. As in, I was one of those people who, after an election was over, the first thing I would do was take out the state times, look at the precinct results. and State
0: Times. (laughs) And so... And by the way, for those of you who don't know, it used to be the State Times, and then it was the State Times and the Morning Advocate, and now it's just the Advocate.
1: Yes. And technically the New Orleans Advocate. And
0: now the New New Orleans (laughs) Advocate. That's right. Thanks to uh, John Georges, right? Yes. So...
1: So anyway, uh, you know, from that, I would always analyze election returns, be it presidential, gubernatorial, local, and so forth. So I'd always had that interest. It was when I was a data analyst at Blue Cross that I discovered there was mm-hmm. a way to make a living from politics. Yeah. And polling was something I literally fell into one time when one of my early campaigns, I saw the, a quote-unquote poll that was being created, and I yeah. thought it was very substandard in quality. And of course, me being me, I opened my mouth and said that I could do a better job. And so from there... And ever since I incorporated my company in 2010, I've done uh, automated and live polling yeah. in 20 states, and it's something that's truly a lot of fun. While that's the bread and butter of my company, I also do uh, strategery, so to speak. In yeah. other words, if a candidate is willing to pay the appropriate funds, I'm also an advisor who can tell them what it takes to win. Yeah. And the polling is a tool to do that. So anyway, that's kind of the brief synopsis of what I do. and. You know, like I said, I I love analyzing anything and everything data-related because when you get into analysis, you leave out the emotions, the conventional wisdom, and the BS. And there's a lot of that in politics,
0: you know, talking about polling. I want to kind of go through some of the nuts and bolts of this without putting too many people to sleep, Uh, starting with polling. Polling used to be, in just my opinion, it used to be a way to get information about what the electorate was thinking what their opinion of an issue or a candidate or a political body would be. Now it seems so often that pollsters, some pollsters, use it to build a press release. They ask very leading questions. That have a predictable answer yes. so that they could use the, the percentages gathered from those questions to put in a release to say 95% of people in Baton Rouge think dying in an automobile accident is bad. Right. and you Really? Know- it's like you needed to pull people to find that out. So it's like, what do you think about that that strategy by some pollsters?
1: What I think it is is unfortunate, to be honest with you, because, again, I'm going to lapse back into the way things used to be. In the old days for these major races, media outlets would commission pollsters for independent polls. Mm-hmm. And so you actually had some objective uh, data that was being presented. Now what's happening is as me- as news outlets are cutting back on budget, cutting their budgets, laying off staff, Polling is something that's very easy to cut. So into that vacuum has sprung a lot of people who have an agenda, in my opinion. And so you're starting to get these slanted polls. The way I look at all these slanted polls is that two wrongs eventually make a right, so to speak, meaning that if you have enough pollsters from various campaigns who are putting forth their own slanted results, eventually you can get kind of a consensus as to what the numbers really are. Especially if let's pretend, yeah, without using names, let's pretend you're running fourth in the governor's race right now, and you are not releasing a poll, <laughs> yeah, whereas the people who are in the first, second, and third place spots are, yeah, well, reading the tea leaves, that says a lot to me,
0: yes, yes, I, I agree with you uh, and it's it's funny about the way that it's being used now. so, you talked about helping candidates or campaigns with strategy. And that part of it is something that I've done as well. And it's so interesting now that you find people who want to turn candidates either into caricatures or turn them into some kind of automaton that doesn't, doesn't really think you just give them a script and stick to the script. And the moment they stray from the script, They screw something up, and then you end up with a mess. My philosophy has always been learn the issues, become very familiar with the people you are going to represent, have a pretty strong grasp of... How many people in the electorate gravitate to your political philosophy? Keep a clear enough message so that labels can't define you or put you in a corner and then work as hard as everybody else, or harder than everybody else on your team right. as a candidate. You have to be the hardest working person. And when you're in front of a crowd, tell them the truth. Yes. And I, I have a saying, if you tell them the truth, you never have to remember what you said because <laughs> you'll repeat it every time because it is what you say. Right. So... Now you find people who run into these candidates, and they give them these lines that are the most—like, who talks like that?
1: You know, that's one thing, Clay. One of the things you've, you've learned about me over the years is that I like talking about unpleasant truths. Yeah. In other words, I'm not going to repeat the same conventional wisdom that mm-hmm. 90% of other mm-hmm. consultants do. My thing about the, what you just described is this. Candidates need to be themselves. That's right. In other words, the candidate, in my opinion, is the one who signs the check. And the consultant works for the candidate. Right. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. And so one of the things I always make sure of in any campaign I'm on is that I'm more than happy to give advice to a candidate. But in the end, the candidate has to be comfortable with the decision that he or she makes. Right. All I can do is give advice.
0: But any smart executive will take the advice of his team under consideration doesn't mean that what they tell you is something that you're going to do like i have no problem being brutally honest with people and i can be pretty aggressive when i want to make my point but it's in the interest of you winning i i never felt like and i and i don't touch every campaign because i just don't want to do that right i mean i i I, i've turned away from opportunities to do that because either i don't like the person or i just don't think they can win right i mean and that's a truth not every person can win every election. I know we'd love to say in our nice, warm, friendly little, you know, way that oh, anybody can win any race on any given day. No, that's not true. Right. There is a there is a strategy to winning an election. And it is, it's, it's either a combination of you doing a lot of things right and the other guy doing a lot of things wrong. And sometimes there is right place, right time. Yes. You're in a race. The other candidate falls apart or they run out of money. Scandal hits. Bang, you're made. But it's politics. I think, would you agree with this statement that you can't, it is
1: not an exact science? There's definitely a lot of art to it. And I think a lot of it, too, is kind of having a gut level feel as to what moves the electorate and mm-hmm. what doesn't. And you see, that to me is what separates the cons- successful consultants from the herd, so to speak, yeah. is anybody can, right now, the hot word is digital. Everybody wants to do digital this, digital that, and digital <laughs> the other thing. But to Tell me, me about it. What's more important? Digital to me is a means to an end. It's a means to an end, yes, sir. And in five years, it'll be something else. It, absolutely be, right. But but I think you know once you get past you know the latest technology, what really is important at the core is what do voters think? You know, one of the things about President Obama with his 2008 and 2012 campaigns, social media, social media. And he knew exactly what voters he needed to hit and yeah. what amount to get the desired results. That's right. So if, for instance, you were a Democrat, the idea in 2004 after George W. Bush's re-election that a Democrat could carry Indiana and North Carolina— would have been preposterous, Uh but there was something that the Obama team saw in reading the tea leaves that convinced them that it was. Uh They took advantage of it and won. Uh Similarly, in 2008, when they won Ohio and Florida by razor-thin margins, nobody would have ever thought they could replicate those razor-thin margins. They did.
0: Well, Mitt Romney, and I don't want to go too far back here, but Mitt Romney... His campaign, I thought, was lethargic in the beginning. Yes. And I thought they were clumsy in the middle. And then toward the end, he seemed like he was flailing. The thing that annoyed me most about him is that you're a wealthy guy. You've made a lot of money. Right. Own it, brother. There's no need. I'm one of you. I'm I'm a normal guy. No, you're not. You've made a lot of money. Most people can see you've made a lot of money. Own it. Does it mean that you are incapable of understanding the quote-unquote common person? Absolutely not. You absolutely can. Right. But don't hide from the fact that you are a wealthy man. I think he did a lot of that. The 47% comment was stupid.
1: Uncalled for.
0: You know, Because of what he may have been trying to say, that 47% of the people are not likely to vote for me, it was an inartful, as you say, uncalled for way of going about it. And you just have to understand that. When you're elected to the job, you have to represent everybody.
1: You do. And you know, what you described with Mitt Romney, I think is a perfect example of what I mentioned a few minutes ago about ultimately a candidate has to be himself or herself right? because he or she really is the campaign. With Mitt Romney, one of the things that will forever puzzle me is that with the supposed uh, caliber of the staff he had, Mm -hmm. I could go on YouTube and in five minutes find clips from the 1994 Senate campaign against Ted Kennedy. He was eviscerated over Bain
0: Capital. That's right.
1: So one of the things that I saw when Mitt Romney was running again was there's either going to be the 1994 Mitt, which is tentative, halting, you know, Uh, Monty Burns uh, (laughs) (laughs) incarnate,
0: or... A Simpsons reference there. (laughs) Right.
1: Or the 2002 incarnation of Mitt Romney that was hitting, firing on all cylinders. He was a successful business executive. Tenacious. Who turned around a corrupt Olympics. Yeah. But you know, what happened was that in the presidential campaign 2012... He started off with the 2002 version of Mitt Mm -hmm. when he inviscerated Newt and other candidates. But then as time went on, the unbelievably stupid things that he and his advisors said.
0: They pandered in a way that did not help him. They right. misused an opportunity with Benghazi, and I don't mean that in any disrespect to the people who lost their lives. They, 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 mis, they missed an opportunity to have a discussion about what happened at Benghazi is maybe a better way to say it. Right. And it was just a bad it was just a bad campaign all the way around. It was just bad. And so here we are now, and, and I want to get to the presidential elections at the last end of our discussion Certainly. because the Trump factor can be summed up in two words or one word if you put them together, rainmaker. Yes. That's what he's doing right now, but I do not believe he will be the nominee. So, but let's talk about Louisiana. Okay. Let's start at the top of the ballot, the governor's race. Three Republicans, one Democrat, a relatively unknown Democrat, albeit long-standing uh, legislator, a public service commissioner, a secretary of state that is, uh, excuse me, a Louisiana state uh, L- lieutenant, lieutenant governor yes. who is— very beloved in the capital region, and a U.S. Senator who's probably more feared than liked. Uh, of the four of them, who has surprised you with the way they've gone about campaigning?
1: You know, the candidate who has most impressed me by just staying steady and. Scott Angel? Better than that, John Bell Edwards. John
0: Bell Edwards.
1: The Tell reason me I why. say that, if you go back into time, back in 2013, the one thing that everyone kept saying when John Bell Edwards was jumping in was that, oh, nobody knows who he is. He's from A-Meet. You know, he's an unknown. He's a state representative. Everyone knows that Mitch Landry is going to be the nominee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things I've learned, and this is kind of Art of war <laughs> is that if you're going to run for the long – kind of like have the long game, you start taking care of intermediate obstacles that stand in the way of the ultimate goal. In John Bell Edwards' case, one of the things – several of the things he did which was really smart was – he basically let it be known to Democratic operatives that he was the Democratic candidate. He started putting billboards up in New Orleans. He started moving in on Mitch's turf. He started making statements to the effect that he looked forward to Mitch being in the race, but that he was in it to stay. In other words, he saw the long game. Yeah. And and so as time went on, uh, Mitch faded away. It certainly didn't help when his sister lost by a— more than 10 point margin last yeah, year. Yeah, she
0: got guzzled, but she probably could have lost by more. Yeah, I think she could it, there's a possibility she could have lost by more.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: she it was it was not early voting was brutal to her, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it could be. it, it you know.
1: In fact, one of the things which nobody reports, but I love plucking out these obscure facts was that yeah. So normally in a Louisiana statewide election, the expectation is that with you know a ten point turnout difference between white and black voters, yep. blacks will represent about twenty seven percent of the electorate. Mm-hmm. In the two thousand and fourteen Senate primary, it was twenty nine percent. In the runoff, it was thirty. To put this in perspective, when President Obama was reelected, he had a thirty thirty one percent black electorate. In other words, Mary Landrieu managed to get out the black vote in such a number to where. We had an essentially a presidential level electorate. Right. So I do agree with you that she probably would have lost with nearly 40 percent of Mm -hmm. the vote had you had a typical turnout differential kind of election. Mm -hmm.
0: So you're impressed with the way that uh, John Bell Edwards has run his campaign, his his ability to be steady. Yes. Who has disappointed you the most?
1: Jay Darden. Why? Jay Darden to me is one of these candidates who everybody knew was destined for higher office. Absolutely. Starting all the way back in 1987 when he lost his state Senate race by approximately 160 votes.
0: Last vote he lost, the last election he
1: lost. It was. Then he came back back roaring to win with 60 plus percent of the vote in a multi candidate field in Mm -hmm. his 1988 Metro Council race. Mm -hmm. From then on, he won every single race.
0: Every race. Sometimes twice in a year.
1: Yes. And so with every race that Jay Darden ran in and won, his trademark was that he was aggressive, he played to win, he ran clever ads, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So along comes the governor's campaign, and nothing happened.
0: I, I don't fully disagree with you. Um, in interest of full disclosure, he's a friend of mine. Yes. I think, and we've had that conversation, I think his strategy... Has been to hold his powder until now, right? Because Vitter had so much money. Now, whether or not Kennedy, George Kennedy, is as you know his his campaign lead, right? Whether that strategy works out or not, it remains to be seen. Vitter's got uh, you know, a lot of money that he can spend in a lot of different ways. Yes, but I too was I, I have scratched my head at at the holding back until now but as you see now he is starting to run his media they waited until qualifying was over they're starting to spend media and there is some there is some logic to that because people really only start paying attention now
1: they do and this this is gonna be one of those interesting and it isn't
0: like his name recognition
1: is low right well there's a couple i guess contextual things i think that need to be explained to kind of give you you know why i gave the terse answer that i did Sure. so number one in various races I've been polling around the state, when I have a client who lets me put the governor's race as the first mm-hmm. the first uh, question on the poll, yeah. every single time I've polled in anywhere across Louisiana, Jade Darden's run last, and I have not seen any evidence of movement. It'd be one thing if— let's, Why do you think that is? I just think there's nothing exciting about him. Hmm. In other words, the clever campaigns that were hallmark—the uh, clever ads that were hallmark of his prior campaign— I haven't seen any evidence of that. And now, in fairness to Jay, he does have a tough job, which is lieutenant governor, that a lot of people don't really understand what it does or right. why it even exists. Right. But so when you hold your powder, which I agree is conventional wisdom amongst media people. When you
0: are, well, I don't know that it's conventional wisdom because I, quite frankly, am, I'm not a favor of waiting on, in, no. in favor of waiting until the last minute unless you either don't have a lot of money True. and you want to have some money to message yourself Close to early voting and then on Election Day or if your opponent has tripled you up on money and you've Mm -hmm. got to compete with it because everything they've spent from now uh, back six months may have had an impact. But what you do over the next six weeks will either win you or lose you the election.
1: Right. And there's certainly there's definitely kind of a fine line as to when you start spending money. So that's, that's the other part, too, that I was referring to is, so all these polls I've done, I've seen very little evidence of any kind of movement from Darden. But here's the more crucial thing, in my opinion. So okay. he waited until after qualifying. I mean, personally, I think that's four weeks too late. But on October 25th, we could have a better postmortem on that. yeah But the thing is, the first ad that came out, to me, it was amazingly mediocre. In other words, a cardboard cutout of yeah. Tiger Stadium yeah. with him in jeans, you know, with a microphone. Yeah. I was like, this to me is political ad. Yeah, I didn't.
0: um, I'm hoping that they improve Yeah, because that one that one didn't move me. I remember the ad from four years ago with him walking. I think he was near the state capitol, you know, in the suit around the tree. And he's got the very deliberate voiceover talking about him and what he has done. It was a well done ad. Yes. The Kennedy ad. And and we'll we'll stay with the governor's race, but just as right. a, I'll chase this one rabbit. The Kennedy ad, I thought at first was was something, and then it just kind of kept going because it's a sixty-second ad, mm. and it's him talking about coming. Actually, maybe even be longer, but it's him talking about his upbringing, and Zachary and how he learned. Right. That ad was very very well done. Yes. You know, even even with the vintage, uh, pickup truck and the and the the. That was very well done. They right. put a lot of time into that. But I think that that ad, and I, I don't know if you will agree with this, that is that ad isn't about the race that he's running. That ad is more <laughs> about the race that he's waiting to run. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what Which would be it the is. U.S. Senate race. Right. So that, but the, that's the strategy that goes along with politics. It's like we know whoever he's you know, John Kennedy was never going to be challenged in any way that was going to keep him from being the the, the state treasurer for another four years. Right. But he wants that Senate seat. And he has— The that, same Senate seat he ran for. In
1: 2008.
0: In 2008.
1: Yep. And here's the other thing, too, about Darden's ads. So you wait till after qualifying. That's debatable about whether it's the best strategy. But when your first ad is mediocre, then it's kind of like you've already set bad expectations for future ads— and, you know, you can make an argument that people can improve with time because people forget now that when Bill Cassidy first ran for Congress in 2008,
0: mm-hmm. he had that
1: first ad of him with the power generator. You yep. know, yeah. it was very, very mediocre. But as time went on, he got some clever ads like yep. the one of Don Casio with the airplane going mm-hmm. back and forth. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so Cassidy he got better. Right. The problem is that there's a big difference between 2008 and 2015. That is voters are a lot less engaged in this election. Here we are four and a half weeks out, and to be honest, I find it a very ho-hum affair in terms of just— The entire
0: process so far has been that. Yes. To the public.
1: So, in other words, from polling I've done, just from the general feeling I get, voters are not quite as engaged in this election. And if it's bad for governor, imagine how bad Down it is. Down the line, that's yes. right.
0: So that's what I want to get to next. But, but before we finish there, and as a point mm-hmm. of clarity, Kennedy did run for a Senate seat, but it was Landrew's yes. Senate seat back in 2008— in Lieutenant Governor, this has been an odd, odd cycle of events. Right. You've got Billy Dungesser, who has run for this job at least 15 times, it seems. <laughs> uh, kidding. Kip Holden, mayor of Baton Rouge, who's been mayor for 11 going on 12 years. Yes. Uh, John Young, who has money actually running some, some good ads right now, and Albert uh, uh, Guillory, right, who talked about the N word, right, and in a way that I, I don't, I didn't get what he was trying to do, other than gain attention for his campaign. Chris Nakamoto was in here, mm. I guess, about a month ago to come get my thoughts on it, and I said, yeah. It's a strategy that some use in politics called a Hail Mary. Right. And he threw a Hail Mary, and he got results because you are here talking with me about the ad. But I said, probably by tomorrow, nobody will care. Right. And it was bar- barely through the end of the day. This debate last week, or I guess that was last week. Did you see that forum?
1: The one where Kip and Elbert he and Gilly K- went after had the very other.
0: heated exchange. He hmm. called Kip an idiot.
1: <laughs> Jeez. Yeah.
0: Kip used the word and said, you know, we've spent all these years trying to keep, you know, people from calling us. And he used the N-word. And then uh, even though this is a podcast and there's no FCC regulations, I'm just not saying that. But he, he and then Gilbert got up and he said. Only an idiot who hadn't seen the ad would say what you just said. And I'm thinking, guys, if there was ever a reason not to vote for either one of you, you just gave it to us. Right.
1: To me, it's kind of a—I think it was a ploy to get attention. But what I think is Elbert Gilroy's more fundamental problem is when you look at his campaign finance reports, the last one I saw, he was deep in the hole. Yeah. And you easily need a million-plus to run any kind of statewide race.
0: Absolutely.
1: I don't—I'm not really—if it were up to me and if, let's pretend for a second, that Elbert had asked me for advice, I would have advised him to run for election to a state senate seat. Because as a reelected black Republican, he would have had a ton more leverage, kind of mm-hmm. like a J.C. Watts or a Tim mm-hmm. Scott.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, J.C. Watts though is a little bit different. He had been a popular football player with Oklahoma, so true. I mean, he did come into politics being a very popular ball player in a state that loves their football team, much like right. you know this one does with you know with LSU. I mean, there are other college football teams here, but that's the that's the grand champion. Of of college sports in Louisiana, so let's talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about that race specifically. Okay. John Young, what are your thoughts uh, on Young?
1: So, for disclosure's sake, I am working with the Young campaign. Okay. What I can say is this is going to be a race where I think Kip Holden pretty much gets one of the runoff spots, just yep. like John Bell Edwards. Yep. And so then it becomes kind of a battle between Nungesser and Young, both of whom have a lot of money to spend. And in the end, what's going to matter is who has the more appealing message and if there are any hits that come into this race, which hit is more effective?
0: Well, you know, with with you working with Young's campaign, I'll be careful how I ask <laughs> sure. you this, but Kip Holden has, has a track record of lots of successes in Baton Rouge for people who like him, dislike him, whatever you may say. right? I think his... His time as mayor has been a lot more good than bad. I don't think crime has been... uh, Issues with crime haven't been really resolved, but I think a big part of that is with the growth in population, so goes a growth in certain types of criminal activity. It's a trend that we've seen all across the country, all throughout time, when areas grow and portions of of a, a large area happens to see a larger portion of poorer or inner city neighborhoods spread, then crime will spread. You know, people do the most crime where they have the least. And that's, that's not, not that it's right. It is what it is. Right. So Kip gets into the runoff. The state Democratic Party, which, by the way, just cannot find a horse to ride and win. They throw all of their money behind Kip. What's the messaging to get people to vote for him? Versus, say, a John Young or, or Billy Nungesser, who's you know, been a parish president.
1: I think in that situation, he would have to talk about what he's done for Baton Rouge and what he would like to do for the state. For the state. Yeah.
0: One of the things that he's been able to do is he's been able to work on both sides of Florida Street here in Baton Rouge. Yes. Although I think that most will, most will agree, if they're being honest, that there hasn't been nearly enough development in North Baton Rouge. Right. Uh, Almost none.
1: Particularly having very little in the way of hospital facilities in North Baton Rouge.
0: Which, very little. There are no hospitals in North Baton Rouge. You have to go to Zachary to get to the nearest hospital. That's Northeast Baton Rouge Parish. But there are no hospitals in (laughs) Baton Rouge proper in North Baton Rouge.
1: Clarification, Northern Northern East Baton Rouge Parish. Yes,
0: which to me is a travesty in any regard. I mean, just as decent people... The fact that that area doesn't have a hospital, they've got a clinic, Right. It's just, and it's causing issues at Our Lady of the Lake in Baton Rouge where a couple of weekends ago there was a door slammed and people thought that there was a gunshot. I spoke with some law enforcement mm. friends. It's because people are on edge, but that's a that's a subject for another day. Yes. Let's move, uh, let's talk a little bit about Attorney General okay? and that race and what you think about it.
1: So in that race, what's going on there is that a lot depends on to what extent the Democrats in the race get any traction from people who vote the party line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because you have- Caldwell, I don't
0: think Caldwell's going to lose, though. No, he's in good shape. He ran as a Democrat, switched to Republican. N- not many people know anything about him, but they know he's the attorney general. Right. And he's stayed largely you know, out of scandal, outside of the Elvis thing. Does he still do that?
1: From what I've heard from time to time, yes. <laughs> I actually
0: think I'd want to see that one time just to be able, just, to, just to know that it actually is a thing that he does. Right. But I don't think Caldwell is going to lose there.
1: No. And, you know, the fundamental thing about that race is, th- this, is this is like a John Cuvianism. <laughs> Nobody cares what an ex-politician says or does. Right. And in this case, we're talking about Jeff Landry. Mm-hmm. So not, not only did he lose after a single term in Congress, but he lost overwhelmingly. So he doesn't really, in my opinion, have market value. Yeah. And so for him to run against a fellow Republican and think he can get 50 percent of the vote, it just doesn't pass the credibility test, in my opinion. Is
0: his argument – is his argument that – and I'm holding up the quotation signs here – is his (laughs) argument that uh, Caldwell is not a real, quote-unquote, Republican?
1: That's probably going to be the tack he takes. But the thing is, when you say that kind of remark, you're certainly not going to get any Democratic votes. And Republicans do not block vote in a Republican or Republican race.
0: Well, almost <laughs> there. There's, it, there was almost a two to one Republican uh, Democrat to Republican margin anyway. Right. There, there are still certainly more registered Democrats than Republicans in Louisiana. Right. So at one time it was, uh, it was something like two to one. I think, and now a number of registered Democrats have gone to Republican. A high, a, a, a big number have gone to no party.
1: Right. In fact, that's an interesting subtext, which will probably be the subject of our next segment or the last segment, is that so as of September 1st, 46 percent of voters are registered Democrat.
0: Oh, no, no, no. Yes, that's on my mind. Come on. You know how my (laughs) mind works. Don't be jumping ahead of me there, huh? You can't give away the end of the movie, brother. So (laughs) wait a minute. Pretend you didn't hear that, folks. All right. (laughs) One
1: one good topic (laughs) at a time, right? That's right. That's right.
0: Uh, The state legislature, I don't want to talk about any one specific race. Let's just talk about it. In general, it's sure. been it, it has it's it's gone Republican, which I guess in a state like Louisiana, I don't know that it carries the same gravitas as saying a majority in Congress, you know, in Washington versus here in Louisiana. Right. Because of how the parties, uh, their delegations based on areas that include Republicans and Democrats and some issues that may not be favored by, say, the Republican Party maybe blocked in New Orleans because the delegation there right. is, is they love it they want it or in or in Shreveport that you know up there so the legislature what is your opinion of their ability to function as a group and where do you think the majority will stay i i happen to think it's probably going to stay majority republican right. in both both chambers but what do you think
1: very little very little partisan change if any i think the subtext that's important for your listeners to understand is that if governor is low wattage, my experience from just doing various legislative polling is that it's even less wattage for legislative races. Mm-hmm. As If people aren't really engaged, they're probably going to break late on these races. One common theme I am seeing seeing in these races, even though half the legislature did go in unopposed, in those races where, let's say, an incumbent had no opposition in 2011 and all of a sudden has opposition, mm-hmm. those have the opportunities for a lot more mischief than would be commonly thought because, quite simply— those incumbents have not fought a, fought a race in eight years. Voters have forgotten who they are. So I've polled several races, and I don't want to tip my hand as to which ones, but in each situation— Oh, situ- come on. <laughs> All I can tell you is these are situations where Republican incumbents got a free ride in 2011. They have opposition this year, uh-huh. be it intra-party or from Democrats. Uh-huh. And their numbers are not that impressive.
0: It's been interesting to watch politics in general. I want to talk, uh, I want to move quickly to the the Bessie board and just the Department of Education as as a whole. Mm -hmm. But it's been interesting the way that the average Louisianan looks at the political structure as a whole after, in the waning months of the Jindal administration. Right. There is a distaste for Louisiana politics. And we are back at that place in Louisiana where people just don't think anybody can get anything right. When Jindal got into office, he rode into office on the throw the bums out mentality. And he had a bunch of people with him, which is why he can insult the legislature in front of them in his first speech. And then people started to say, "Okay, we're going to get something done. He had an aggressive education reform package and there were lots of changes there. And we were going to make some adjustments to business. And he dealt with Steli and all of those things that went on. And then along the way, we started to shift back to, well, he doesn't really care about Louisiana. He's running for president. Well, nobody's watching the store and then now we're at that place again where people are like, throw the bums out. Right. How did we get back here in just eight years?
1: Well, I think what happened is you had two things going on. So in Governor Jindal's first term, I think his interest was in getting reelected first. Yes. Even though everybody knew as far back as 2008 that he was clearly interested in higher office. Yes. You know, we, it, particularly when you had the uh, interest in the McCain campaign mm-hmm. of, of making him a possible mm-hmm. running mate. But I think in Gen- Governor General's first term, he played it cautiously, and with the I- with the idea being to win a landslide reelection, and so he did. He, he didn't really push anything aggressively his first year that was controversial. I mean, ethics reform was something that was broadly supported because you had a whole bunch of newcomers. Mm-hmm. S- what happened with Steli, technically speaking, it was Republican legislature. Well, that's right. He
0: took he took credit for a lot of right. what happened, but he wasn't really involved in in making that thing
1: happen. He wasn't. In fact, he was not enthusiastic <laughs> yeah, about the Shaw bill. Yeah, he was against it. Right. Yeah. But when he saw that there was an overwhelming consensus in right. favor of repealing it, right. he realized it would be foolish as a Republican to yeah. be seen as opposing tax cuts. Kind
0: of like Common Core, huh?
1: Right. There's just some issues where you just can't go there yeah. if you're a Democrat or Republican. Once he got reelected, I think what happened is that's when, the when you know, officially he was interested in being president. Mm-hmm. So he attempted to push through an aggressive agenda that was kind of check the box. hmm the problem with that check the box was that I think that education reform got so ugly, particularly in the House Education Committee, yep. that there was little momentum left for the other parts of his reform package. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in 2013, there was the attempt to repeal the income tax, which that whittled down to nothing. Yeah. So I just think what happened was that there was too much too soon Yeah, you can only realistically push through one or two ambitious packages a year, and when he tried to push through several, I, I just and most of what he's done has
0: been thrown back in his face, right? And it's a shame. I think a lot of what he tried to do in his educational reform package was good for Louisiana children. I agree with that. Right. Uh, I agreed with what what he with, with a lot of what he did. Some of the ways he went about doing it, I don't think necessarily were the best way, because in some ways there was an abject, just disrespect of some of the people involved in the process who did deserve to at least... Not, not to get their approval, but they deserve to be treated with a little more dignity. Right. He was throwing haymakers all the way through the process. But, you know, the argument can be made if you're really trying to help children. We don't have time to waste because every year that goes by is a year lost by Louisiana children. So right. I can go with that. Bringing in John White. I like John White a lot. He had success in New Orleans. He's ruffled feathers in the Department of Education. It's not about personality. You don't have to go have <laughs> beers or drink with him or whatever. But you want someone in there who's going to do something to help kids. Common Core has been the subject. Now it's Louisiana state standards or high standards. It's been an often misunderstood thing. People don't really understand what it is. Many people who are the angriest about it. But it comes down to this one question for me. Do you want our children to be able to compete with other states when they graduate high school? Right. And if your answer is yes, then we have to do something more than what we're doing
1: right right and you know what's fascinating about common core because i've pulled this a fair a fair amount when you talk about the individual components of Common Core, mm-hmm. it's actually pretty popular. That's right. It's once you use the words common, common and core. Common core. That's right. And the thing is there's an interesting dichotomy depending on what electoral group you're polling. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about, say, upper income Republicans, I would say it's roughly split easily, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit in favor. Right. Black voters I found roughly three to two against. But when you're talking about middle class conservative voters, I've seen unbelievably bad numbers like five and six to right. one against. In other words, it's gotten that bad name. Yeah. And in my opinion, the messaging of it was very badly botched. Very
0: But Jindal was a part of that. A lot of politicians turned Common Core into an education version of, quote unquote, Obamacare. Right. That's what they did with it. And whether you like and my philosophy about or my 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 reflections of how people have reacted to Obamacare have been this. If you support it when you hear the phrase, the phrase Obamacare offends you because you want it to be called the Affordable Care Act. Right. If you are against it and you're conservative and you hear Obamacare, it angers you because it represents a bunch of things that you don't like. Right. The same is true with Common Core in a lot of ways. Right. Right.
1: Right, it's kind of it's kind of become a red flag kind of word that, you know, there's certain things in it that have drawn objection. Mm -hmm. With Common Core, I think what happened was that it sounds like it wasn't the rollout was not planned very well. No, I had attended a couple years ago. They had a House Education Committee hearing about it in the off season, so to speak. And some of the things I was hearing about the problems with Common Core, you know, you're talking about putting mandates on smaller parishes Mm -hmm. that did not have the wherewithal to you know, hire that physics teacher or that math teacher. And when you start getting into the nitty-gritty about that, like that, that to me is where legislation succeeds or fails. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's the kind of thing that happened with Common Core was that you had enough of those bad stories that got disseminated rather rapidly, and then when President Obama had showed support for the legislation, that's when... It got tagged as Ob- Obama Core. <laughs> that's right, so Obama Core.
0: That's right, Obama Core. That's a turn of phrase I hadn't heard before. And then you know, Jendel, as Orlando breaks into the show by making all kinds of noise in the background. <laughs> uh, when when Jindal turned on it the way that he did, it is just. I thought that it was very Carrie esque for him to be so aggressively in favor of Common Core, and I mean, he wasn't like. On the periphery in favor of it. He was all in. Right. And then you it's like turning a coin over. He was just as against it, you know, kind of like Vitter. Right. When it looked like the political winds had shifted. How long do you think in the era of social media will, politi- will politicians continue to try to get away with that kind of thing?
1: As long as they think they can. But, you know, the funny thing is in the age of Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms— mm-hmm inconsistencies can very easily be brought up and the politicians nailed. It all started way back when, in 2006 when, well, arguably in the pre-social media area in 1987, mm-hmm. when Gary Hart dared reporters to follow him. And we right. all know what happened. Yeah. But then in this era, what happened was in 2006 when Senator, former Senator George Allen of Virginia yeah. made the infamous Macaca remarks. yeah. The thing about that was, and I, I still every time I, I think about that, he brought that. It's like, what the hell was he thinking? He's at a, all these
0: people are there. You're on a stage, it's like, hi, hey, hey, macaca. Well, what is he thinking about? I'm sorry, just you know,
1: you know. And, and you bring up a very good point because Mitt Romney fell into this trap. What Same I, thing. What I think happens is, oftentimes you get into one of these events that you think is closed, and you start losing, no such thing, right? You and I know that, but the problem is a lot of these politicians don't. And so I think when they get into these events that appear to be private events, the tongues loosen and they start saying things they don't. And to me, sometimes
0: Mac- there's booze there.
1: Yeah, but to me, Macaca is a revelation of probably things that he's been saying in private. No question. That he was unfortunate enough to get caught in. Yeah. And see, the thing is, let's say he had said Macaca in 1986, when maybe a half of a percent of Virginians would have been Asian or Indian or so forth. Well, it would not, from a political standpoint, sure, sure. it would not have mattered then. But in 2006, when you're talking about a minority population uh-huh. in Virginia that's near 30%, if you include blacks, Asians, Hispanics, and so forth, well, that's a huge electoral uh, mistake.
0: Yeah. I just, uh, it's interesting. So before we get to the numbers here, mm-hmm. and Orlando, if you could, uh, if before we get to the numbers here, let's talk about Trump. Sure. <laughs> first, your overall with the, when you think Donald Trump for president, your first reaction is what? Go
1: Ross Perot part two. Oh ho 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 ho. So
0: Ross Perot part two. Um, Ross Perot part two. I was with you there until he signed the pledge. I did not think he would sign the pledge. I don't, I don't think he should have signed the pledge. But I don't, now that he's signed it, and since then, it seems like his campaign has been on the wane a bit.
1: Well, I think, too, what's happened, and this is another reason that I'm saying Ross Perot part two, was that when you have a wealthy outsider candidate who comes in and he's providing voice to people who feel like they've been disenfranchised by the political process. Yeah. Immediately, a boomlet gets created yeah. for that candidate. Yeah. that's what happened with Donald Trump when he yeah. started attacking immigrants yeah. back in the summer.
0: But see, but was he was he attacking immigrants? I, so I don't think he was attacking immigrants. I think he had an inartful way of saying we have an immigration problem. We don't control the flow of illegals into the country.
1: I'll go with your longer hand. <laughs> well, because because I think yeah. that
0: that's kind of what was going on. Right. I think that he is not a polished politician. It's like, look, uh, politics is only a portion of what I do. I also represent regular companies, and some of them are owned by very wealthy people. And I'm not talking, I mean, mean people who have been wealthy for a long time, and they don't have filters because they don't have to have filters. And that's who he is. So, do I think he was trying to be a racist? No. Here's the thing Trump's not going to be a closet anything. Just ask him what he thinks. He'll tell you.
1: Right. But, you know, here's, here's where it gets interesting. So when you have people who speak what's on their mind, you know, that's, that's certainly what is desirable in today's homogenized day yeah, and age. Yeah. However, when that speaking your mind, you know, turns to calling reporters bimbos and talking about their menstrual Should cycles, not be doing that. That's going way beyond the, well, what's acceptable discourse. You're
0: spot on right. I thought everybody jumped all over Megyn Kelly. She did her job. Right. She She did her job. She's not up there to make them feel good about who they are. She asked him tough questions and he did say those things. He did. So it's not like she's. And by the way, if any candidate had said some crazy stuff and they're in a debate and you don't ask them about it, you're not doing your job. right? Right. So you have to ask them. The, I have done forums with candidates certainly nowhere near that level. But if you do something stupid that ends up on the Internet or in the newspaper, we're going to ask you about it. Right. So, he, you know, the bimbo thing, the Carly Fiorino, the face thing. Come on. He, you know, he shouldn't have said that. Yeah. And his response at the debate made him look worse. He looked weak. First moment I've seen where he looked weak.
1: In fact, that was kind of what I found interesting about the second debate between the, versus the first debate is he seemed more tentative and yeah. halting in the second debate.
0: What about the optics of him standing next to Jeb Bush? Good grief. Is Jeb Bush seven feet tall? I mean, Trump's a legit 6'3", 6'4", and he looked like a kid standing next to Jeb Bush. Yeah. So, I mean, what about the optics of that, putting the two of them side by side?
1: The media likes a good uh, theater?
0: Yeah. it would Because you had Carson, Trump, and then Jeb on the other side. You know, they can't say, well, we were putting them in order of their—well, that would be—then it would have been Trump, Carson, then Jeb. Right. So um, Trump's in this thing. I asked you about your reaction of him. What's your reaction of Jeb Bush?
1: You know, Jeb, earlier in this segment, you had ask me about candidates who I thought have been disappointed. Yeah. yeah. Jeb Bush is clearly in the disappointing. Because here's the thing. When you're talking about the third person of a political family running for political office, George H.W. and George W. Bush had top-notch political consultants working mm-hmm. for them. Whatever one's opinion was of a Lee Atwater or a Carl Rove or a Karen Hughes. Rove never lost. They were on—for the, a while, they were on their game. Yeah. Now, along comes Jeb Bush. To me, he makes Mitt Romney seem like a, a candidate who was on message. <laughs> In <laughs> other words, everything about his campaign has been disastrous. He's been weak and tentative. I've never—but here's the, here's the interesting thing about that, though— since you have way fewer what I would call establishment slash moderate candidates than you do conservative candidates, it's easier for one of those candidates to make it to the final four, so uh-huh. to speak, because you have less competition for your vote. The only realistic competition Jeb has for the moderate slash establishment vote is really, in my opinion, Kasich or
0: who who I think is is very good on the issues. He does well at the debates. Yes, I and I've told people watch out for him. He he'll, he'll be there. And he's in Ohio, 18 electoral votes. Yep,
1: Kasich, possibly Marco Rubio, and as a longer shot, Chris Christie.
0: No, I don't think so. I think I think Christie's time has come and gone, hmm. uh, and I think he's trying to redefine himself as the the father figure in the room, the tough father figure. He came out like Trump. Everyone said, "Look at this guy. He's not afraid of what right. of what people." And then he became a bully. I mean, he just picked on people at rallies. I think he'll be around, maybe. I mean he could probably be a number 2 a candidate for the number 2 job right. uh, among Republicans but I mean I knew I t- I said to uh Profita and Gallagher last week that they asked who do you think will be the first to go I mm. said Scott Walker hmm. It was silent and I just I just felt like he has had the most disappointing of all of the remaining candidates and the guy who was even more disappointing than him was the guy who got out before him Rick Perry right. but Perry was Perry's campaign and candidacy was disappointing, even before he now he announced he was running again. Right. Um, you may not be able to remember the other guys' message points. Kind of need to remember your own. Right. That debate really hurt him bad. And uh, so, that, wh- what about Ben Carson?
1: So one of the things, and this, this, uh, I'm going to wrap Ben Carson and Christie and all the other candidates all up into one package. Yeah. The reason I'm throwing Christie in. The, the list of those who possibly could get establishment support is this. The one thing about this Republican nomination race that reminds me a lot of 2012 mm-hmm. is what I would call the BFF for a week factor. <laughs> in other <laughs> words, what's happening is voters are falling in and out of love in rapid succession. That's why Jeb's going to be the guy, I'm telling possibly. you. Possibly. But let me tell you. bet a stake on it. On, on Yeah. <laughs> um, on my way here, I kind of sat down and thought of who I think is up, down, and kind of in purgatory at this stage in time. Now, of course, we listen to the remarks a month from now. They'll be dated. But right okay. now— Here we go. Yeah.
0: Because yeah, this is going to be the, the, the numbers section of the right. of the interview because we're wrapping up here. Yeah. So let's go with it. So
1: to close, to close on the presidential, right now Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina are hot property. At the moment. I would argue Carly is hotter because she started off at the kiddie table, got promoted to the adults table, <laughs> and right. has done very, very well. Yes,
0: she's been okay.
1: Right. Those who I think are on the downs, the downslide or they're, they've peaked, yep. Donald Trump and Jeb Bush.
0: You think they've peaked?
1: Donald Trump, well, Jeb Bush has kind of been a non-starter thus far. I don't far. think he's
0: really gotten started yet. I think he is. I think he's waiting on the caucuses.
1: Yeah. Donald Trump, to me, there was certainly a lot of initial excitement, but keep in mind that with the multitude of candidates, each one, in my opinion, is going to get a turn at being on top. Yep. And you still have several months to go before the Iowa caucuses. Then we have the purgatory land, and there's one person who I think has the potential to rise. I'll, I'll, I'll mention oh, this him should last. Be good. Okay. So in purgatory right now, Marco Rubio, who has some poten- some yeah. potential. Yeah. Mike Huckabee, no. No, it's over. Same with Rick Samtorm. he's he's had his day.
0: Oh my gosh, Chevy Chase,
1: no. Yeah. Uh, Rand Paul, similarly, kind of in Never Never Land. Yeah. Uh, John Kasich has potential, but I'm not quite convinced he's caught on.
0: I think you. you I agree with what you said, how you said it, but I think there's great potential
1: there. Yeah, great potential, but like I said, I haven't really seen evidence. It's hard,
0: to, it's hard, though, when you're in a group of so many.
1: Right. Well, and that's the other thing, too. In a group of so many, you have to have kind of that standout moment yeah. in the debate. Yeah. Kasich is certainly, from an intellectual standpoint, done credibly in debate.
0: And he's done television, so he knows how it works.
1: Right. And he has a very good resume, you know, yeah. being chairman of the House yeah. Budget Committee, yeah. governor for swing states, et cetera, et cetera. But he hasn't quite caught on in debate. Now, the candidate you'll notice I deliberately left out, who I'm convinced does have the potential to surge near the end, is Ted Cruz. Can't see
0: it. I just can't see it. Constitutional scholar, conservative juggernaut as it relates to thoughts among Republicans. Right. Just, I I think he's Mitt Romney 2.0 without all the money.
1: Possibly, but if there's one thing that's critically different about Ted Cruz— I had, the advantage, I had the opportunity to see him up, up close mm-hmm. at RLC last year, mm-hmm. and he gave a red meat, as in dripping red meat, speech. Yeah. Plus, with his ideology, I agree with you about his getting into the technicalities about the Constitution. But Which is not bad. I, I don't, I, that right, that but certainly wasn't—I right, didn't say that as a derogation. Right. I'm speaking from a political and electability yeah, yeah, standpoint. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think he, making the connection is important. Right. And you raise money on the extremes, you win in the middle. Right. And to win in the middle, you've got to be incandescent. You've got to be one of these people that, I can't take my eyes off of them, or right. you're just the last man standing
1: in a chump bait competition, which is what McCain was in 2008. Right. There's a crucial difference between like a Ted Cruz and a Mike Huckabee Mike Huckabee has allowed himself, whether willingly or unwillingly, to be painted into the corner of just being the religious conservative candidate.
0: I just I I said to someone last last week that he's not running for pastor in chief. (laughs) Nice, nice man. Right. The whole thing about uh, going to Kentucky and say, if you have to put someone in jail, you know, send me. I'll go to jail for her. Come on, dude. It's good theater. No, no, it's actually not. (laughs) And then the the the, the, just uh, it's too much. Right. He was so funny and so likable, and then he's just become a politician. You know, it's just, and it's, it's it'll happen to the best of them. Right. If you hang around politics long long enough, you might get sick. <laughs> True. So, what about the numbers for Louisiana? Let's move quickly to that. Sure. Talk, talk about that. You talked about the electorate and where right. we are now.
1: So, what I think is important for your listeners to appreciate is that so September first, the voter registration numbers: forty six percent Democratic, twenty eight percent Republican, twenty eight percent. Other unaffiliated libertarian mm-hmm. reform, et cetera, et cetera. I always generically call them independent. Mm-hmm. The couple interesting things underneath those numbers. Number one, independents are slowly but surely catching up to Republicans numerically. Yep. The other thing, But too, it's basically
0: the Republican Party without the R next to it. It's it mostly a conservative voting Group,
1: Right. The problem with independents, if you are a political person, is that their turnout and level of interest is horrible, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's tougher to engage them if you are a campaign trying to do get out the vote activities. Right, right. But the more important number that I think has not really been mentioned much but should be, there's been a serious hemorrhaging in the number of white Democrats. Mm -hmm. To illustrate, I went back in time... Back when George W. Bush was inaugurated in 2001, Mm -hmm. back in those days, 35% of the entire electorate was comprised of white Democrats. More than a third. More than a third. Then between the inauguration of George W. Bush and Barack Obama, that 35% became 26%. -hmm. And in absolute numbers, 188,000 less white Democrats. Between the inauguration of Barack Obama and today, white Democrats have gone from twenty-six to twenty percent of the electorate, and another one hundred seventy-nine thousand less white Democrats. But out they've there. gone
0: to other parties. I mean, right. they've gone to the to, to the Republican Party or right. no party. Right. So it's the ever-shrinking Democratic Party and their power base in terms of the place where the money is coming from has gotten smaller. Correct.
1: There's also another factor I think that needs to be mentioned. Uh, when I was interviewed by Tyler Bridges a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. the one remark in the paper, of course, you know, you say 10 things and the, the quotable is what makes the paper. Yeah. I had mentioned about white Democrats dying off. Now, it was not the perfect word to use. I technically said. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, I'm though. Sorry. You I didn't mean, you didn't mean like
0: casket and undertaker dying no. off. You, <laughs> what,
1: yeah. what, what happened? I, I, and this is just, you know, reporters one oh one. I used the word attrition. Yes. And Tyler said, You mean dying? I said, Well, yeah, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. But anyway, more importantly, you do have a situation where I think that because you don't have replacements yes. for Democrats as they get older. Yes. Just to illustrate, this is another number. The average age of a Louisiana voter is 48. Mm-hmm. The average age of a white Democrat is 58. Mm. So, in other words, you have a situation where those who are white Democrats are getting older and older and older. You don't have the same number of younger white Democrats to replace them. So you have a situation where the Democratic Party in Louisiana is getting pushed to the left, and I think that has statewide implications in terms of having viable candidates.
0: And it it deals with whether or not there will be a Democrat uh, as governor in the near future, and it's looking bleak right now.
1: It is, because a generation ago, the anchor of the Louisiana Democratic Party was in towns like Mare Rouge and mm-hmm, Mamou and mm-hmm, Maryville. Mm-hmm. Today, it's New Orleans. That's right. And to some extent, bat, urban Baton Rouge.
0: Urban Baton Rouge. And it's it's interesting. So we'll get you back here. I want to get you back the week before the elections. Okay. OK, we will that way we will have had early voting out of the way because that's October 11th through the 17th. Yes. The election is on the 24th. So the show that goes up on the 20 on the 22nd, we will probably do some predictions. You and I can talk about that. Sure. And it'll be on tape and it's politics. So it's it's great being right. But it's sometimes interesting being wrong because you get to learn something when you're wrong.
1: Every election is a learning experience. That's
0: exactly right. And
1: one thing that I would like to mention, a tiny plug here. Sure.
0: No, I was going to ask about that, so let's do some plugging. Go ahead. A
1: little plugging. The one number I'm most interested in seeing that will, to me, set the stage for the entire election season mm-hmm. is the volume of early voters on October 10th. No question. The first day. I agree with you. Early voting, what typically happens is you have a great burst of enthusiasm the first day, and it levels off. Absolutely. And... Because we now have approximately a decade's worth of history of early voting now, Uh I could look at those first day numbers, benchmark them against like 2014, 12, 11 and so forth Uh and say, this is what I think will happen.
0: I'm looking forward to that because we are in the middle of a three year election cycle that I've talked about with the elections last year the statewides and, and, and some local races this year. And then in the capital region, of course, we will be electing a new mayor in Baton Rouge, yes. a new city council and the and, and like. So lots going on and uh, we'll get John back. The week early voting is happening by that Wednesday night. Uh, we'll see where we are uh, before this show goes up on Thursday, but certainly we'll do, we'll probably do a couple. We certainly will do, Before the elections and then maybe the week after we'll we'll do something quick about how everything panned out sure because you know a lot of the some races are going to end on the 24th obviously the governor's race will be we'll be talking about the runoff after then and if the runoff turns out to be David Vitter and John Bell Edwards and I know some people may not want to hear this but you and I will be talking about how many points Vitter beats John Bell Edwards by right so so how can people reach you find you
1: wherever you are so I'm on Facebook JMC Enterprises I have a Twitter handle at WinwithJMC and winwithjmc.com is my website where I periodically update it with content. I strictly keep to the numbers. Uh-huh. I, I try to keep it maybe to five percent punditry or less. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so that's that's how I can be accessed. Well,
0: John's a good guy, as you've heard over the last uh, our, he is a very smart guy. We enjoy talking. And actually, we just kind of let you guys in on the kinds of conversations we have <laughs> anyway. So Real anyway, politic 101. that's exactly yes. right. Thank you, John. We appreciate it, buddy. It's been a pleasure. Back to wrap up the show in just a moment.
1: Have you ever wanted to host your own podcast? Coming soon, Claire Young Enterprises and Podcast 225 will be giving you your big chance. You'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment to create a podcast that you can be proud of. You'll have an engineer and a professional show open and close. The Clay Young Show is already considered one of the best podcasts in the state. Get the same audio quality and professional packaging for your very own podcast. Stay tuned for more details. Your chance to have your own show is coming soon.
0: This is The Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. So there you have it. We'll see what goes on And the coming weeks with the election cycle. And don't forget, as I said, talking about elections, our scheduled guest for next week is the Louisiana Secretary of State, Tom Shedler, who basically is the elections guru himself. He's got to be, but he's also running himself for re-election. We'll talk a little bit about That And we'll talk about kind of the voter turnout trend that's been going on. Ask him a little bit about politics. Does he see himself doing something beyond being Secretary of State? And I look forward to talking with him. Very, very nice guy. I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation with him. That's scheduled for next week. And as I said to you after that, we are scheduled to speak with David Savona the executive editor of Cigar Aficionado magazine. I am looking very forward to that. In addition to what that magazine talks about, we'll also get into the discussion about Cuba. When many people think about Cuba, you think about travel. People think about the weather, and they also think about cigars. But one of the other things that we should talk about is the Cuban uh, government there, the Castros, and the impact that them still being there will have on our impending naturalized relationships with a uh, relationship with Cuba. So we'll talk with David Savona about that in the coming weeks. So we're, I think we're going to do that show. I think we're going to have that conversation next week, and then it'll be up after the Shedler show. Looking forward to that. All right, you guys have a fantastic rest of your day. If it's the weekend, hopefully you're enjoying it. And we look forward to speaking with you again on the next edition of the Clay Young Show here on podcast 225.com and on iTunes. Don't forget, spread the word. Tell folks about us. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Clay Young Show.